Hello, and welcome to the Best Little Horror House in Philly. I'm your host, George Heffler, and this is the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And our guest today is my good friend, Chris Hewitt. How you doing, Chris? Pretty good, George. Thanks for having me on. I'm always happy to talk about horror. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Um, now, Chris and I have known each other for a little while now, and uh, I think it's safe to say that we have a similar taste in horror movies, uh, and that we tend to prefer some of the... Uh, more classic ones, um, some of the 70s and 80s kind of horror um, movies like Friday the 13th and the movie we're discussing today, the best horror movie of all time, Phantasm from 1979. By far. By far. Um, so it gets me today. Yeah, so what is it that you like about this genre? Uh, or not, Yeah, the genre in general and specifically horror from this kind of era where it was just sort of getting started in terms of... Um, slashers and mass appeal to the American audience. Well, I think the biggest part about that is the fact that like during the 70s and 80s there was no real groundwork laid out for how a lot of the films tried to emulate and mimic things at the time so right. everybody was ex experimenting. They didn't know what was going to work, what didn't, so they got to really be themselves as writers and directors. Sure. And we got some really weird great stuff out there because of it, like Phantasm, which is still just this like ephemeral like did I watch this? Like I still go back and like does this movie actually exist? Yeah. Like, what is this thing? But yeah, it's just, there was no, like, set path for success. Yeah, the established formulas weren't really there yeah. yet, so you didn't have the cliches that they could uh, rely on, really. Yeah, yeah, a lot of the tropes weren't even established yet, yeah. which was great, because I, I now I look back and go, oh, of course these are tropes, but that's because mm -hmm. they started here and then became tropes. It's, yeah, it's really interesting when you can go back and kind of see where, where these tropes kind of start from. Um... You know, there's definitely a lot of the Slender Man in mm -hmm. the Tall Man from Phantasm. Um, I think that that has a serious impact on people who wrote the creepypastas and stuff that started it. Um, and even going back to movies like Bay of Blood, which is a slasher that kind of really kicked it off. And it's you can clearly see where Friday the 13th as a franchise took a ton of inspiration from it, which really started that that sort of like uh, campers slasher uh, environment that we see all the time still. Yeah, and you know, something else that I kind of want to mention as we get into things here too is like the cast of all of these films, especially with them being like early horror, were mostly unknowns. You mm -hmm. wouldn't have a lot of big names attached to these yeah. kind of things, and it let me be introduced, especially as a kid, to a lot of people that I otherwise would never have come across. Sure. Especially because, like, growing up in the early 90s and things like that, it was the Johnny Depp, it was the Brad Pitts, you know, that whole era, like, there you had Keanu. Shout out. Shout out to the real one. Um, Sandra Bullock, all these kind of things going on. But I, you know, my grandparents owned a little, like, mom and pop, you know, grocery store, and they rented VHS at the time. That's awesome. So my big thing was, like, Oh, I'm bored. Let me go see. Yeah, you probably get a lot of exposure to movies that you might yeah, otherwise not and, have. And thankfully, I don't think they really knew a lot of what they rented. So <laughs> when I picked up this Phantasm movie, because like, oh, the, the original cover art on the VHS cover, you know, with like the tall man up front, the sphere, mm -hmm. and like like rising above it, I thought like, oh, this almost looks like a Jim Henson Dark Crystal kind of thing. Like, you know, <laughs> I, like that's the aesthetic that I thought I was going home yeah, to. Yeah, not quite. <laughs> not at all. Not. At all. And it just, it blew me away. Because, like, at the time, I think I was seven when I first saw it. And I just vividly remember that very first experience of, like, trying to tell myself, I you know, I'm brave enough to get through this movie. Right. It's terrifying me. It's also interesting, too, as, like, a young, a young kid to, like, be able to connect with Mike in this scenario. Like, sure. Well, like, speaking of Mike, yeah. let's, uh, let's talk about what this movie is about. Mm. So... 
after the death of Tommy, who is stabbed by a woman at a cemetery mid-coitus, uh, Jody and his friend Reggie uh, attend the funeral at the Morningside Funeral Home. Tommy is Reggie and Jody's friend, and uh, Jody is followed by his teenage brother Mike, who uh, their parents have also recently died. And Mike is afraid of losing his big brother because Jody intends to travel. Um, so while he's there, Mike is snooping around the cemetery and sees the mortician, known as the Tall Man, um, carrying Tommy's coffin alone without any help, which I gotta say is a really wonderful example of sort of the like show don't tell oh, thing yeah, that is missing from it. a lot of things uh, in today's modern horror. You know, we see the the pallbearers really struggling with this heavy coffin and then not 5 minutes later you see the tall man lifting it up by himself yep. and it does a really good job of communicating his sort of otherworldly strength. Um, but I I digress. So Mike breaks into the mortuary to investigate uh, this tall man and discovers uh, weird, uh, like, sort of dwarf creatures with yellow blood and dangerous flying spheres that protect the the mortuary. Um, And he gets chased by the tall man, and basically the rest of the movie is them trying to figure out what's going on at this mortuary. Um, So you say that you related to Mike, this this teenage character who is, for all intents and purposes, the protagonist of Mm -hmm. this of this series um and in this movie in particular but it also it does a really interesting job of kind of jumping around protagonists where it feels like jody is the main character at first uh and then we see mike kind of take center stage and as it progresses uh as a franchise reggie Reggie, also really takes sort of center stage although he definitely is he does his role is not something to sneeze at in this first one either Mm -hmm. um but yeah so go ahead and talk about uh your connection with mike that you were talking about i think like mike in this film gave me my lifelong now like morbid curiosity with horror because you have this teenager who's confused you know there's a lot going on in his life that he's not quite sure about and you always think about like funeral homes and mortuaries anyway of off-limits emotionally, like sure. don't want to be there, you know if you have to go, it's not good. So this kid, you know, going in to explore of his own volition, like trying to figure out, piece this mystery together, it, that was something else that caught me too. At first I was like, oh, maybe this is like a good mystery film, like maybe this is like, you know, Boxcar Children or like, a, you know, yeah. Nancy Drew kind of thing. I was wrong again. But yeah, like you said, there are certain scenes that play into it, like the atmosphere that this movie sets up. Yeah. Some of these shots, like these long, dark hallways, become very reminiscent, skipping ahead a little bit, like things that have been impacted by this film in particular, like a lot of the cold openings in Supernatural and things like that evoke mm. these same shots of like impending dread. Yeah, absolutely. It's not like... Great tone setters. Yeah, it's very much so. And what I appreciate about these, and I think Phantasm also impacted like my love for like Silent Hill as a video game series, and I was like, you, your own unreliable narrator. You're not quite sure what you're seeing, mm-hmm. and if you can't even trust that character that's in the middle of the situation, it leaves me so just kind of like, I get goosebumps still just like thinking right. about it, because I'm still going back and thinking about the movie. I'm like, I'm not quite sure what happens, and I've seen it a dozen times now, at <laughs> yeah. least. Because I always go back, I'm like, okay, I know exactly where this begins, I know where it ends, I can pay attention to the middle, and every time I come out that other side, I've got more questions than I had answers. And even though it's like the franchise is now wrapped, essentially, I just, I'm still left wanting more. 
but in a good way. It's not one of those things like I was expecting answers because that's not what this particular genre even does. Yeah, and they they really establish in this first one that you're not going to get a lot of answers. Um, yeah. I guess, spoiler alert, uh, we're going to talk about this decades-old movie mm-hmm. here. Um, it does end sort of... Uh, yes, it was all a dream, but also parts of it might have been real. Mm-hmm. Um, Reggie is still alive, even though we've seen him get murdered two and a half times, if you count the ice, the flipped ice cream truck. Yes. Um, but well, he, he is still alive in this. Uh, Jody remains dead, ostensibly from a car accident. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the very end, when you think that the entire thing was a dream and he was just having these negative nightmares from the death of his brother, uh, the tall man... Uh, shouts at uh, he screams boy at every the, time yeah, yeah it's really still. freaky and uh, and one of his dwarf servants uh, who looks exactly like a Jawa shatters through the mirror and and grabs Mike so mm-hmm. what's real what's not who the, well, who the hell knows it's, it's interesting that you bring up the Jawa reference too because that's something that, like we've talked about before this film is like it also evokes a lot of like the popular sci-fi of the time sure because you have like it is littered with references to Dune. Because yeah. you know, fear is the mind killer. Overcome fear. A lot of the things, like the hand in the box. Yeah, the there's the hand, hand in the, the box. box um, there's actually one of the bars that they go to. It has Dune in the name. Uh, they, the grandma says fear is the killer. There's the black box that inflicts pain as part of a test. Um, so there's definitely a lot of Dune references. Although, And I say that it looks like a Jawa. Ostensibly, uh, Don Cassarelli, who is... Uh, the vision behind this movie um, he claims that it, he already had written the script mm-hmm. before Star Wars came out um, and that makes sense so just a happy coincidence <laughs> that they look that way um, but they are very reminiscent well um, it's funny because like I saw the, I actually saw Phantasm before I saw the original Star Wars oh, so, so when so I saw Jawa, the first Jawa, just Jawa just I was like I know what these guys do yeah, it's not good the Jawas are actually they're scavengers all around yep, and they look like the Phantasm guys, guys, not the other yeah. way around. Uh, so I mentioned Don Cascarelli, uh, Don Cascarelli, I believe actually is how you say his name. Um, I said he's the Vision, and that is not a joke because he had a hand in basically everything here. Uh, he was the writer, the director, the producer, the cinematographer, and the film editor. Mm-hmm. And to speak to the power of independent filmmaking, his vision definitely comes through, and his mother, Kate Coscarelli, was also the production designer, did the makeup, the wardrobe. She's in it as an extra during the funeral guest scene. Yep. Uh, and she adapted it into a novel, which is actually a serious collector's item now because there were only 500 made, and uh, it's now out of print. It's it's definitely a challenge to find, especially for a reasonable price, but I, but I wish you luck. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really wonderful to see that uh, he had such a hand in it, and it really comes across because... There is what some people refer to as a director's cut, but mm-hmm. it's three and a half hour or not three and a half hours. It's like three hours long, um, and some people are interested in seeing that because um, there are some dropped plot lines, like the ones with uh, the fortune teller grandmother oh, yeah. and everything. But because he was the editor as well, the one that we got really is the director's cut, um, and I think that those dropped plot lines. While it can be a little frustrating at times, it does help to sort of lend to that uh, what's happening sort of vibe. Like you're constantly off your uh, off your guard, wondering like, are we gonna see these people again? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it actually does kind of work. It's not 
a perfect movie, but it it is the best horror movie ever made, and uh, and I think that it's because there's such a unique vision behind it. Yeah, it's just like I said, it's so interesting and different from a. The only other thing that's comparable to me around this time period would be something along the lines of like Suspiria. Mm. You your expectations. This is a good movie. This is a good example of not subverting expectations just for the purpose of subverting expectations. Right. Like, it makes sense within this universe they established. Mm-hmm. Like, this is how this world operates, and it's that much more brilliant for it because you're, yeah. you're never quite sure, like, what's going on. And at the end of the day, it's one of those few films where, like, I know I'm not going to get the answers, and I don't want them because yeah. I don't want that bail. I don't want to see behind that bail. Yeah, that, that kind of eeriness is part of what... Uh horror is all about mm-hmm. and uh, and by leaving you with questions and not holding your hand through everything i think that it does a really good job of keeping you wanting more um you compared it to suspiria i mm-hmm. think that there is a lot of that sort of giallo influence on it um and in particular i think that the score uh really oh, yeah. kind of calls to mind the goblin scores for mm-hmm. a lot of those um films like suspiria and uh it, it's really part of a, just a great sound design in general um that's one thing i think this movie does really incredibly well yeah. is the music is great but uh even little things like um at one point mike cuts off the fingers of the tall man and he screams and as the scream fades out it clearly becomes less human mm-hmm. and um sort of seeing that peek inside uh what the tall man really is because we see that he's been alive for forever and he has uh weird looking blood and the his cut off fingers turn into a bug, bug monster. monster yeah yeah good stuff <laughs> speaking of the bug monster though like just to sidetrack a bit but like that's something else that i appreciate from especially the horror films at this time mm-hmm. is this was pre-computer animation mm-hmm. this was pre-cgi so i'm a big fan of practical effects yeah especially, practical effects are a huge deal like the spheres like the first time i saw that thing barreling down the hallway mm-hmm like, lodged in that guy's forehead, I just, like, as a kid, I went, huh? Yeah, there's a a lot of really cool iconography in this. Uh, The silver spheres that you just mentioned are the tall man's sort of main weapon in his his domain. Uh, He sends them out, they chase down people with reckless abandon, and uh, literally lodge into your head, and blood uh, shoots out like crazy. I don't know where it's drilling into that there's that much blood right there. But and, and speaking of that too, like the the first victim of the sphere, the guy in the um the mortuary, because like my, this thing is chasing Mike. Mike drops to the ground, overshoots him, lodges in this guy's forehead, and as the guy dies, I still vividly remember mm. this guy dropping to the ground and pissing himself in the throes of death. I that's did like, not realize that until just, just watch. Yeah, yeah, that's just something I was like, that is just a little detail. It's like <laughs> I don't know if I needed it, but it's there, and it's like, oh yeah, that just makes it. I, it's something you don't get with a lot of those films. Is like this is not a good movie for realism, but at the same time, it's mm-hmm. like the little attention to details, it's like, oh, yeah, of course. Like, yeah. This and, guy's dead. And it's it's really wonderfully done because it takes place in this really, like, stark marble hallway, mm-hmm. and blood shoots out of his head like a damn fountain, <laughs> and the, the deep red of it really is a stark contrast to the marble that uh, it's taking place in yeah, and it's, it's just another example of it really just looking great and yeah, being set up so well to me very similar and striking in the scene and the shining when the elevator doors open mm. and the blood cascades down the hallway it's sure. all of a sudden like this like 
the blood in this scene is the character. Like, mm -hmm. This is your focus. And it, like, yeah, the contrast, especially in that one, with the colors is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about some of these characters. Um, first up, we have Mike. He's, like we said, the teenage uh, teenage brother of Jody. And uh, he's, he's our main character. Uh, and he is a little annoying mm -hmm. in a relatable way in that he... Jody is like, okay, stay here. And he's like, oh, yeah, of course, I'll stay here. And then immediately he's, oh, it, he's followed kid. Jody. I was that kid. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he he's relatable in a, in, a, in a way that you're like, yeah, I definitely was in a similar situation where someone was like, oh, stay here. Like, I'm going to hang out with my friends. I'd be like, well, no, I'm coming too. I'm still that kid. Well, I can't, yeah, yeah, no, I'm still that kid. Um, so we have him. We have Jody who... Uh, He's sitting there, uh, some sort of traveling musician, I guess, mm -hmm. is what he's up to. Um, he has a great jam sesh with Reggie. Reggie yeah. uh, they, they sing Sitting Here at Midnight, which was actually written by the actor who plays Jody. He is an actual musician in real life. Um, and they were just that was prior to the song Sitting Here at Midnight actually being released. So really it was written for this in a way. Um, and they play it sitting there on the on the stoop with Reggie, uh, portrayed by Reggie Bannister. Reggie, yep. uh, very difficult name transition to get used to, I'm sure. Um, who is the local ice cream man and uh, also resident ass kicker. Oh, yeah. Oh, the <laughs> um, weapons get really nice as the uh, thing yeah, goes on. Yeah, absolutely. He's got a sweet car as well when he's not uh, driving the ice cream truck. Although, maybe that ice cream truck should have been kept because, uh, as we see, the cold seems to have some sort of effect, effect. On, the, uh, on the on the tall man, who's another interesting character. Um, definitely uh, one thing that we don't see quite as much these days is these really striking horror mm -hmm. villains uh, the way that we used to. Uh, you know, I, I see people kind of point out, like, the uh, Happy Death Day guy, and yeah. it's like... The that that baby mask is not really doing anything. Yeah, for me. and that's that's what gets me about the tall man too. Like especially in a time when every slasher, every villain was behind a mask. Mm -hmm. Here's a really tall elderly gentleman who looks yeah. like he could be your grandfather. And if your grandfather was six seven, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If your grandfather was in the NBA. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just one of those things. Like, but even in seeing me, like you know something's off. You know something's weird. Something's wrong. But I think that speaks a lot to Angus Scrim as a, the actor who played the tall man, um, recently passed away too, unfortunately. Just from everything I've heard, the best horror villains are the people who are the absolute kindest souls in real life. Because mm -hmm. they understand, like they can go to those places without being affected by it, and that's not who they are on a daily basis. So they yeah. can really push themselves with that. And like... Everything I've ever heard is like Angus Grimm was the sweetest person you could have ever possibly met. Like, really was that grandfatherly person yeah. in real life. But then the t like the tall man gave him this like outlet. And I, I think I uh, like originally like when he was brought to this prospect, he's like, I don't think I can do this. Like that's not me. But mm -hmm. he does a great job. Oh, There's no denying it. Still haunts me. Like I honestly still have nightmares about the tall man, this tall sure. elderly gentleman, and yeah. it's just. It's very striking. Yeah, it's just, it's not a Freddy, it's not a Jason. It's just like, here's a person mm -hmm. showing you his face. Yeah. And it's just like, oh yeah, no, I'm doing weird things here, but hi. Sure. Yeah. 
Uh, I think the only thing more frightening than the tall man in this movie is the fortune teller grandmother, uh, who is extremely, extremely disturbing. Um, She seems to not be able to talk and has a psychic connection with her granddaughter, but also there seems to be some sort of prank going on that they're playing on on poor Michael. Um, because they they share a knowing look and smile and chuckle to each other, um, but also she is actually magic. She mm-hmm. conjures and vanishes a black box without we have never find out how. The Pull movie, the yeah, the movie just Pull says deal with it, uh, <laughs> and deal with it we must, <laughs> you know. And it does a really great job of kind of like I said, um, keeping you off your guard and not knowing how these things are happening or what could possibly happen. It does a really good job of keeping that in your mind as well. Well, and one of the things that, like I said, like this movie and this franchise as a whole is really great about letting you craft your own theories, Mm -hmm. like to your heart's content. Because I don't, like, I don't even think Don Coscarelli has all the answers to this because he just like, these movies are almost like a stream of conscience effort. Yeah. And I love that so much because there are little things that I go back now and now that like, they give you a little bit of the backside for the tall man. He was once Jebediah Morningside. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah, we see we see him in a picture in this in this installment of the uh, movie. We see him in an, in an antique photo that comes to life and threatens Mike. Um, but yes, in later installments, we actually go and see the original mortician mm-hmm. uh, who sort of. He discovers this parallel universe uh, or dimension or whatever you want to call it and uh, gets kind of taken over by the tall man. Um, so it really goes to some crazy yeah. places. And speaking about the tall man too, going to crazy places, the one thing that terrified me most about this was in, in the instances where they do manage to, like, to, to defeat the tall man when they've killed him, these the way that this alternate dimension works and it's very interesting concept of like you know a tuning fork like frequencies connecting yeah. to this there are these whenever you find one of these portals to this other world that he's from they're just two steel bars that come up out of the ground and it looks perfectly fine on either side you can see through this it's just these two metal bars but as you pass between them you jump into this alternate dimension. Yeah, and it's a really, like I, I've, used, yeah. I've said unsettling before, but I think yeah. that that's one of the best words to describe a lot of yeah. what happens in this movie is you go through and it's this bright red planet and it's a line of slaves that are yeah. literally extends to the horizon. And like um, the scorching heat, yeah. which is a good comparison to like, you know, the cold affecting him so much. But mm-hmm. yeah, like I said, like when they defeat him, I was like, oh, they, they've done it. They beat him. Another shell, basically, another tall man steps right out of between these yeah. two cylinders, picks up, you know, this discarded corpse, tosses it through, and he's back. Yeah. Like, they don't, that there's no, it. like, is he coming back? You know, it's not like a, a Jason being revived kind of thing, or Freddy coming back from the nightmare. It's like, no, there's, it's implied yeah. that there's an army of these tall men. That's the beauty ready of, to, of not having to worry about, oh, we killed him, how does, uh, how do we bring him back so we can continue this yeah, franchise? You yeah. don't have to worry about that. Um... I also want to talk about the uh, the for Don Cascarelli, his achievements are pretty remarkable. Frankly, um, in 1975, his first movie, uh, Jim, the World's Greatest, mm-hmm. um, was Don was the youngest director ever to have a feature film distributed by a major studio. Uh, with that movie, he was 19 years old, 
and Universal Studios distributed it for him, and uh, but it was independently produced and critically acclaimed. Um, he has also cr- uh, created the movies Bubba Hotep, which Great is classic. Movie. Classic movie. Uh, and he also did Beastmaster, which was on TNT also, on a loop, yep. basically. Oh, yeah. No, I watched that a lot as a kid. Um, yep. And he, he really has a, a unique voice, I think. So I definitely want to give him some props for that. Uh, I think that there are a lot of really interesting things that relate to the relationship between Jody and Mike as well mm-hmm. in this movie. My brother is also a significant uh, difference in our age. Uh, he's seven and a half years older than me, so I definitely also related to Mike in terms of the way that he and Jody interacted. Um, and I think that one thing that really jumped out at me is when Jody says that he's going to the mortuary to see what's going on and Mike says don't leave me alone Mm -hmm. and I think that it's really great delivery and it's very indicative of what his real fear is which is not so much the tall man it's Mike leaving him alone in this particular mm -hmm. instance and also Mike leaving him alone to go travel yeah yeah. Um, I think that there's a lot underlying that relationship in a really positive way. Jody also uh, gives some great gun safety tips. Uh, Don't aim a gun unless you intend to shoot it. Don't shoot it at someone unless you intend to kill him. And my favorite, warning shots are bullshit. (laughs) Yes. Um, That's a classic classic gun safety tip if ever I heard Uh, it. Oh, yeah. Now, like I said, uh, Jody does die. Um, and they say that Jody dies in a car accident is, is the official cause of death, uh, according to Reggie, at least. Um, and I think that it was really interesting that we see Mike driving recklessly as Jody shoots at the driverless mm-hmm. car, driverless in quotes. Um, it turns out to be a dwarf uh, made from the body of Tommy, Tommy. their friend that kicked this whole thing off. Um, in another really, frankly, shocking scene when they pull back the the hood and it's Tommy under there. Very, very uh, shocking, especially the first time you see it. Yeah, because another just one of those moments of, like, you expect, you know, that the tall man is not of this earth, is unearthly, Mm -hmm. that, oh, of course, like, these little creatures are coming from... No, he's, like, raiding mortuaries and funeral homes, funeral parlors... Four physical shells to crush down to create these little minions, essentially. Yeah. And I, I don't believe, I don't believe the grave diggers are in the first one. Uh, other, no. Like the more human-like minions, I believe they pop up in two and, right. and beyond. Yeah, those also just like, oh yes, of course he has more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So, so we've talked about the movie. Uh, at large, but I, I want to know, Chris, what do you think makes this the best horror movie of all time? It is by far, in my experience, the most unique horror film experience I've ever had to this day. And a lot of times when something new comes out, then I'm like, oh yeah, still a great movie, like The Witch. Mm-hmm. Very similar tone and feel for me with Phantasm. You know, there's a lot going on, you're not sure what's real, what isn't, you're left with a lot of questions. I have to keep going back to this one and going, like, this came first. Right. Like, sure, you know, it may not have been a direct influence or whatnot, but, like, I don't believe without Phantasm succeeding with such a cult status as it has that we'd have a lot of those films because people wouldn't be able to say, oh, no, okay, yeah, yeah, we can actually do something with this. People will accept this. Right. So I think Don Coscarelli, like, 
doing the experiment he did, devoting all the time and effort he did to Phantasm, opened the door to so many other unique experiences. It just, it's so ethereal, ephemeral, just off-the-wall, batshit crazy without being in-your-face about it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. Um, I think that it's, I, like I said, it's a really unique vision. I think that it does have a lot of influence on a lot of culture that continues today. Uh, like you said, Silent Hill, mm-hmm. I think. I see a lot of that sort of uh, unease, um, what's real, what's not, sort of transition between two worlds um, definitely comes across in mm-hmm. that. And I think that the acting is really, really wonderful. Yeah, it. um, I, it's it's cheesy in a in a great way, right, in my yeah. opinion. But at the same time, everyone in it who's involved is taking it seriously. So, yeah, which and is which very important. I think that speaks volumes again, like Don Coscarelli, like putting together this small band of people to mm-hmm. get this thing out there, calling all of his friends for favors and things like that. They're like, yeah, no, we're going to support you. So this really is a labor of love. And yeah, it shows. And uh, you know, he had all kinds of tips and tricks to uh, to do that. I know that he uh, when he rented his uh, equipment, he would rent it on a Friday. That way he could record over the weekend, weekend. and have return it on a Monday and still only have to pay for the one day. Mm-hmm. So just a little cost-saving tip, tip. for all oh, you yeah. uh, filmmakers out there. <laughs> yeah, and just something else that I think speaks to like why it's one of my favorite... It is my favorite horror experience of all time is like it doesn't rely on body count either. Mm-hmm. A lot of the slashers, you're waiting for that, like, that, that fodder. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, you know, how's the next kill going to happen? How's this going to happen? The whole time in this... You're just terrified of what is the next scene bringing to me. Not yeah. like who's going to die. Because mm-hmm. this, like, what's nice about this movie is it keeps the deaths few and far in between, and you don't even really, like they're not very like striking or gory. You're like odd. Oh, mine, uh, to- the the franchise expands on that later, but especially this first film, it's just like there's a stabbing. Yeah. Like it's just you know it's normal typical violence in a supernatural ungodly setting i think that that uh, definitely helps the franchise as a lo- at, at whole because as opposed to movies like the friday the 13th franchise where every every uh, iteration you just have a new crop of essentially nameless jobbers mm-hmm. who are yeah. just there to get murdered with this franchise you stay with reggie and mike, mike. for the entire yeah. thing uh, i guess spoiler alert uh, for the entire franchise, franchise because you know now that they don't really perish uh, throughout, but they you still feel the tension because you're attached to these characters. characters yeah. Um, because you actually get to spend time with them and go through the experiences that they go through as well. Yeah, and circling back to like you know the tall man just not having a mask. Angus Grimm stuck with this till the very end mm-hmm. too. Like, yeah. Secretly filmed the last Phantasm entry. And was just like, this This is my labor of love. This is my little baby. Yeah. You know, and he's just there for it. I think that does a lot, too, because, you know, it's kind of like um, like Robert England, Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, you know, prosthetics there and everything, but you know that's Robert England. Yeah. But the, the Jasons change. Sure. Like, yeah. like Yeah, me, Jason's been through a lot. Um, the Hellraiser franchise had uh, the another, same, same person who was pinhead the entire yep. time, except for the most... Recent two, I believe. Which uh, I have not seen. <laughs> they're not good, I'll tell you that for free. Um, although I will say the most recent one, not to get on too large of a tangent here, but it was, you know, for the more recent ones, mm-hmm. it wasn't that bad. Um, movies like Hell World, Deader, 
uh, are truly bottom of the barrel. But uh, every now and then, Hellraiser will throw one out to surprise you. I know Hellraiser 5 Inferno is not a good Hellraiser movie, but it is a very good Silent Hill movie. Yes, yes it is. Finally caught that one. Yeah, um, yeah it's fine. I think that's kind of like speaks to this franchise's strength too is because like even the worst is an okay horror movie yeah like it's not it's still fun bad. there's something yeah. to enjoy in it and at least we talked about it too like for me this franchise is kind of like a reverse bell curve like, yeah definitely one is like wow this is amazing two they don't really try to do much more with it they mm-hmm. add a little more to the mythos but it just kind of starts just like oh now okay now i know what to expect now i know what to expect and then when we hit three, it's okay. Somewhere. And then also I'm like, oh, you know, let's ramp it back up. Yeah. And I think Ravager actually finished pretty strong on like setting yeah, up this world. Yeah, I agree. World. It reminded me a lot of some of the more recent um, Child's Play movies in mm-hmm. that it was a direct-to-video uh, sequel, but it still had the same voice behind it, and that really you know, makes it still feel like part of the franchise in a positive way. Yeah. And it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, which happens as well for Child's Play. And I, I honestly think sometimes, like, the direct-to-video kind of, like, production method, there are less expectations to really capitalize on what you're putting out there. Sure. Because, like, okay, we're putting this in theaters, there's a the distribution cost, there's a the marketing cost, we got to collect back on tickets. So you're not worried about, you know, that in-game profit. So you're like, okay, I can kind of, like, be a little more of myself with this. Absolutely. Because, like, you know some production company is not really going to like push me to make this available for a general audience because mm-hmm. those who can want to seek it out they can access it from their homes now right so it's like oh wow like that's a game changer in itself and i think that's why ravenger was so good because you know i think that's what coscarelli was aiming toward and had it gotten like a wide release you know like theatrical kind of like debut i don't think ravenger would be the ravenger we have i think you're right i think you're right um so there you have it that's why uh, Phantasm is the greatest horror movie of all time. Uh, Chris, do you have any final thoughts? Anything you wanted to plug? No, other than more Dos- Don Coscarelli films, and also like honestly, if you have not seen Phantasm, like I don't want to like I don't want to hype it too much because a lot of this is like my own personal experience with mm-hmm. the movie, especially growing up and being influenced at a young age with it. But I I guarantee you, you will never see another horror movie like Phantasm. You're not wrong. It is certainly unique, um, and I want to thank you for being our inaugural guest here, Chris. Yeah, thank thanks you. for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me on, and uh, thanks for letting me go balls to the wall. Yes, absolutely. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, I hope you enjoyed. This was the best little horror house in Philly, and uh, that's all. all right. Have a good one.